Um, I'm going to try and get you excited about the shepherds. Anyway, I think they're interesting. And um, let's pray about what we're going to discover today. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us the words of witnesses, witnesses who saw what happened on that very first Christmas. And Father, we pray that as we come for many of us to 50th, 60th, 70th Christmas, perhaps we're a bit less excited. But Father, we pray that uh, we might get excited about the fact that you were willing to come and live among us and to share some of the excitement that these men sitting out in a paddock experienced that night. Lord, we thank you for sending your son. We thank you for the salvation that he brought. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Righto. First, the Christmas card view of Christmas and the shepherds. Anyone ever received a Christmas card that looked a bit like that? Oh, good. Um, that could be Christmas Eve in Macaulay Gap, where I live. There's a few sheep on the ground. Blue sky, it doesn't rain there very often. And there's a bright light. If you see a bright light when you're out camping in Macaulay's Gap, you should worry. Somebody is spotlighting that person. It could be Davinder. He goes out with James Wiseman sometime. Um, you're in... Pardon? They could be searching for all sorts of things. They're probably looking for rabbits or whatever, and they're going to shoot it. And if you're in the spotlight, you're in trouble. So, it's not Macaulay's Gap, is it? Quite like this one. Little campfire. Um, no Billy. Oh, there's a few pots. Um, I'm sort of wondering what they're cooking. Lamb, I presume, but anyway. The other thing is the town is quite close. If they were that close to the town, they'd be going home. Um, and in fact, if you've travelled in parts of Africa and some parts of South Asia, lots of people take their animals out during the day and come back. And so if you were that close to a town, they'd be coming and going. So you've got to imagine that that's probably not quite accurate in that regard. This one. Town's a little bit further away. What worries me about this picture? The coloured clothing worries me a bit. Didn't have dyes in those days. Most of those sort of coloured dyes were invented during the 19th century by German scientists. Prior to that, clothing was fairly drab. Um, so, accurate though is the fair, complete lack of any trees, which makes me wonder where they got the timber for their little fire. Um, the other thing I find a little bit underwhelming here is the multitude of angels. Maybe you just didn't want to draw 5,000 faces, but it's a bit of a disappointment. So, the things that you know already is that if it had been December, it's too cold to be out on the hills in Israel. I've been out on the hills in Israel in um, January and I've got a picture of my son in thong standing in the snow. Those who know my son know that he's weird. But anyway, that's how it was. It gets snow, it gets very cold. And they don't actually take their animals grazing out extensively like that. During winter, they keep them in 
um, in town and feed them hay or whatever they've got. Um, they've got to stay shedded. The other thing we know is that if you're going to run a census of the whole world, you didn't run it in winter. So Augustus, when he had his census, he would have run it through the summer when people were in a position to be travelling. Now, we don't know when Jesus was born. It probably doesn't really matter at all. But the one thing we know is it wasn't in December. But nevertheless, it's good enough time. It's Christmas in the Southern Hemisphere is probably the right time. So there we go. Um, the other thing is I don't know that they would have worried about a campfire. Um, people in the ancient world didn't sit up and read at night. I think there's probably more chance of them using a Kindle and reading by pamphlet, but anyway. Um, when it got dark, they went to sleep. Sometimes they'd wake up in the middle of the night and have a bit of a chat, whatever, and as soon as it became light, they'd get up again. So nobody had a campfire and stayed awake. Um, sheep. If they were like ours, by about two o'clock, they would be gone. They would not hang around. Um, loose like that sheep are good um, you can bring them in at night we bring ours in Vicky's got a few pet sheep and so I actually go and bring them back into their little fold at night um, and they all sit down but in the middle of the night they get up and start wandering and if you've left the gate open into the yard which I haven't done for many years you hear this munching going on outside the window and suddenly Vicky's garden's at great risk so the sheep were not just sitting loose like that. So, if we can't trust Christmas carols, who can you trust? Right. Over the past 50 years or so, all sorts of commentators have weighed into what's now regarded as the sort of historico-critical method of looking at scripture passages, and that is they try to look for the cultural background. Um, and so they take the culture of the period very seriously and that actually for many, many things in the Bible has been extremely helpful. We know a lot more about what was going on at that time and it can give us a really good context for the events that we see in scripture. And along with that comes a really good understanding of it. Now, as a result of that, Vicky was doing some reading and she found... Um, document, I think it was on Facebook, and it nicely represents the sort of view that has come as a result of the sort of research that I'm talking about. Let me read. Were you aware that shepherds in Jesus' day were the lowest of the low? They weren't allowed to vote and they were banned from the temple. Imagine that. They were smelly, ratty, homeless, bracket, they lived with their stock. And they were basically shunned by the very society that needed them for the lambs that required for the temple sacrifice. Then, one night, the heavens opened. Fancy that. They weren't allowed to vote. I wonder who did vote for Nero after all that. Obviously, it wasn't shepherds. Um, I can't find any evidence for voting outside that of the Greek Republic at this time. But anyway, I'm sure the man knows something I don't know. There's a really interesting American uh, Bible teacher, David Crutoe's his name, and he's got a website that critiques what he calls the urban legends of the New Testament. He does not like 
the particular view that this man has just presented. Um, he said that the sort of view that we've just heard about is largely based on Greek documents. Um, the two societies, Greek and Palestine, uh, were quite different. And in fact, they're about 300 years apart. There are a few bits that are true. These shepherds did live for periods of the year with their sheep. And our best evidence, in a sense, for that is one of Jesus' own statements. I am the gate. One of the seven I am statements in John. And if you have a look at this picture that I stole from the internet, shamelessly, there's this rather ratty-looking steel gate there. And uh, they didn't have ratty-looking steel gates 2,000 years ago. And so, in fact, it was often the shepherd that slept across the opening to little sheep folds like this to keep their sheep in. Um, it is fairly accurate, as I said, in terms of showing the lush coverage of herbage and all the trees. Uh, the hills around that part of Israel are pretty barren, really. Pretty, I really wondered what they fed their sheep on. But anyway, um, you still see nomadic herders there. There are Bedouins still in that area. Probably more likely is stuff like this, which we saw. And they still make them also in Africa as well as in the Middle East. They get these briary, prickly, nasty sort of bushes, a bit like the acacia thorn bushes that we get as a weed in our place. And they tear them out and they build this sort of enclosure. And the sheep are pretty reluctant to jump over what are pretty thorny, nasty bits of brush. And again, you'll notice that there's a bit of an opening and someone could sleep across that. The black tent, the Bedouins tend to stay in black tents. Um, so that's one that's set up. It's, uh, there are a number of places where you can go and see these reproductions in a sense of what they do use. So they do use these sort of sheepfolds and they did historically. Um, and so... The one thing that you can tell about the smell is that at one point we had some dogs that were coming from somewhere, dingoes, that were killing at some of our sheep. So every night we'd bring them into a small enclosure that would be oh, about the size of the length of those chairs into here. And it rapidly starts to smell a lot. And so I can believe that if you had to sleep on the edge of that, you'd probably start to smell a lot too. Um, so I feel sorry for the poor shepherds because they didn't have running water and maybe life was a bit miserable for them. However, as a nation, Israel had a pretty good number of really great historical figures who were described as shepherds. The first on that list, Abel. You remember that he made a sacrifice that was acceptable and his brother's was not and his sacrifice was a sheep. And it wasn't the fact that it was a sheep that was sacrificed. It was the attitude of the man that made the sacrifice that mattered. But it seems to be that the pattern that came down through the history of God's interactions with man was that that became the template. And while there were sacrifices of plant matter, so people would sacrifice seed and they would sacrifice um, other things like that, it was sacrifices of animals in the pattern of Abel that became um, the norm for the 
um, Old Testament Jewish cult. Abraham, one of the towering figures of the Old Testament, was, of course, a shepherd um, with extraordinarily large flocks. His son Isaac was a shepherd. And his son Jacob was a shepherd, as was his brother, um, who chose not to be the choice of the line. We go past a few generations, and we come to a man called Jesse, who lived at Bethlehem, Bethlehem, and he was a shepherd with many flocks, and the best way to look after shepherd, uh, sheep, if you had a lot of them, was to have plenty of sons, which he did, and then you get the sons to go out and look at them. David, he was one of the youngest, and he was out there looking after animals, and old Samuel was there scratching his head, trying to work out who we were going to anoint, and couldn't find them. But it was David who was actually out doing the hard work, looking up for the sheep at the time. He was the one that God had chosen to be their king. So there's this great legacy of shepherds as leaders in Israel. And if you look through the Old Testament, many of the attributes of being a shepherd are used to describe the, attitude, the attributes of God. There's really strong interaction happening there. And, of course, the word that we get for pastor and pastoral is simply taken from shepherding. Okay. But by the time of Jesus, shepherds had started to gain a bit of a poorer reputation. If you look at the Old Testament book of Zechariah, which is about 500 BC, give or take, And in particular, for those that are interested, if you look at uh, Zechariah 11, verses 4 to 17, there's a passage that talks about good and bad shepherds. It's a messianic prophecy, um, in part. And we would, of course, know that the good shepherd that Zechariah was talking about was ultimately fulfilled by Jesus, and the bad shepherds were those that were offering very poor leadership to the nation both at the time of Zechariah, in the intervening period, but also at the time of Jesus as well. If you could talk about bad shepherds and make it a, an image that sticks, people must have known at that time about poor shepherding as well. Now, by the time of Jesus, the nation had largely ceased to become one of nomadic herders. If you go back, obviously, to the time of Abraham, which is 2,000 years earlier, so that's a long time as far as we are, It was entirely made up of nomadic herders. But by the time of Jesus, they'd moved to more what you'd call a mixed economy. They had merchants. They had tradespeople, like Jesus. Um, They had many people also farmed, so that is they um, worked the ground rather than running animals. The status of shepherds by this period was actually in decline. One very accurate observation that's often made during sermons about this time of year is that God came to ordinary people. He was interested in ordinary people. Well, that's absolutely, definitely true. And in fact, in a couple of chapters' time in Luke 4, um, Jesus would take a quote from Isaiah as his introduction to his ministry that would say that I'm really interested in the poor and the downtrodden. So yes, that's very accurate. But why does Luke include the shepherds? Well, Luke's an interesting gospel. As a child, I liked it the best because I thought it had the best Christmas story. There's probably no really good reason to like it, but I liked it anyway. Um, Luke includes anecdotes, events, that include outsiders more than any other of the gospels. It includes more about women. 
It includes more about foreigners. And so it's very consistent that the witness that he chooses to use for the nativity is a bunch of outsiders within the Jewish society. Okay, so if I disagree with what that um, quote that Vicky found me is, what do I find more interesting? Here is the more recent and slightly nuanced view of what the shepherds were actually doing. And why has our view changed? Now, while we're probably agreeing that shepherds had started to shuffle down towards the bottom of the social heap, one thing that we can find out about them is within the regulations of the Mishnah. Now, this is a bunch of oral traditions and sort of regulations, if you want to call them that. Some of the laws that Jesus kept digging into the Pharisees about because they'd built up this huge edifice of hardship, is how Jesus saw it, upon ordinary people. You can't do this and you can't do that and you've got to do it this way and you can't do it that way. And someone I was talking to yesterday, and I can't think who it was now, um, for example, you know, you weren't allowed to light a fire on the Sabbath, so presumably you had cold leftovers and salad on the Sabbath because you weren't allowed to cook it, or you had you to start your fire the day before, build it right up so it was still going. When you're in Israel now, um, there are things called Shabbat doors, which is the word for Sabbath, because modern-day Pharisees, which are most Jews, have decided that you can't light a fire, which means you can't press a button that starts an electrical signal. So that means when you come to an electric door or a lift, you can't press the button. And so they've got manual doors, one with a handle, beside the electric doors. So, and there's a little light above it that says Shabbat in Hebrew. And so all the Orthodox Jews on Sabbath, they don't go through the electric doors, they go through the one with the handle. And if you go into their buildings, as I've told you before, um, their lifts on Sabbath run 24 hours a day because they're not allowed to press the button, so the lifts go floor, ground, one, two, three, four, five, four, three, two, one, G, and endlessly for 24 hours so that you don't have to press the button. You just wait. Oh, the door's magically open, and you get in. So they're the sort of rules that Jesus was really unhappy about. But reading them are actually quite interesting. And if you want to be bothered, you can, the mixture in its entirety is on the internet. And so there's this... Mr. Vav, B-A-B, section K, chapter 7, verse 7, and then verse 80A, is the section that I'm going to quote from. Now, the Mishnah was written a bit later than Jesus, about 200 years later, but what they were doing at that time in the second century was actually writing down all of the traditions that they'd had for hundreds of years, um, and so we know much of what was in the Mishnah was also in force at the time of Jesus. And in fact, the section that is relevant to us now has to date before AD 70 because it's all about the temple and the temple was gone from AD 70 on. The section includes this. A forbidding of the keeping of flocks throughout the land of Israel, except in Syria and in the wilderness. Because on closer settled land, these sheep eat people's crops. He farmers like Jeff Esdale, he's very unhappy if sheep get in and eat his crops. Um, so there were rules. They'd stopped basically common land grazing because too many people 
growing thing. So we can tell this is the change in the way society was running. They were stopping being nomadic herders and were now farmers. Um, but there's an exemption. And even 2,000 years ago, there were loopholes. There's always loopholes. There were a number of flocks that were otherwise allowed because they were kept for temple services. And that's what you'll find in that section of the Mishnah. What on earth do I mean by that? Okay, Bethlehem. You sort of imagine that it's a long way from anywhere, but it's actually now basically an outer suburb of Jerusalem. Vicky and I drove about the same distance to come to church this morning from McCully's Gap as you would have to drive from Bethlehem to the centre of Jerusalem. It's not a long way, really. Um, and I've got a quote here from another American writer called Randy Alcorn. So the shepherds we read about in Luke 2 actually fulfilling temple duties. They were not quite second class or untrustworthy. They were shepherds appointed by the temple for the temple. The only ones that could carry out temple duties were the so-called shepherd priests. They served in the fields on the outskirts of Bethlehem, a place that Micah calls Bethlehem Ephrathah. That's where the sacrificial lambs used for the Passover festival and feast were cared for. God changed everything that night. When Gabriel appeared, actually it doesn't mention Gabriel, Gabriel's mentioned earlier in the chapter, so we don't know who it was. He had an update about the law of Moses to deliver to these shepherd priests. Now aside from Mary and Joseph, these men were the first eyewitness admirers and worshippers of the God incarnate. We find that when we get to verses 15 to 18. They were the first to gaze upon that baby who would one day wash them clean and erase the need for sacrificial sheep offerings anymore. So, consistent with what I was saying about Luke earlier, if he's going to mention someone sort of linked to the religious elite, Luke's clever enough only to mention the outsiders that fit within this insider group. So, you know, this, if you look at the priesthood, you've got right at the top of them the sort of very pious men at the top that wandered around the uh, temple in their robes. At the bottom end of the heap of this sort of inner group are the outsiders within the inside group. And that's who the angels went and saw. He most certainly did not bother going to the Sanhedrin or to the high priest. Simply to those bunch of people that Alcorn calls shepherd priests. Now you see, at that time you could bring your own sheep up to the temple. And in fact, we've got one that would be perfect for the job. It's just under a year old. It's spotless. It's going to eat well. Um, but most people didn't have sheep. Because I lived too far away. And when you lived a long way away, it was hard to bring it anyway. So, because they were no longer sheep herders, that is, they were, you know, they grew crops, dressed vines, planted orchards. There were builders, like Jesus. Uh, fishermen, we know that. There were scribes, there were teachers. All of those sort of things that are in society like ours. Those sort of people took their money and they went and bought a sheep 
at the temple, in the outer courts. It was the way that trade was conducted that angered Jesus, not the fact that the trade itself, because it was essential. Actually, the money-changing bit, was that was a bit of a have, but the buying of the um, offering. So Jesus' parents, when they went and gave their offering for Jesus' birth, they had to go and buy two birds and they would have purchased them there as well. They probably didn't have the wherewithal to go out and trap their own. And so the trade was essential. It was the way that trade was conducted that angered Jesus. What I want you to go home and remember is that the coming of the Lamb of God was first announced to the men who spent their lives looking after the lambs that would have been sacrificed. Now, the sacrifice of those sheep wasn't actually fully sufficient for the forgiveness of sins. It was really a stopgap until a fully acceptable sacrifice could be found. That fully acceptable sacrifice was what those angels were announcing. And though I can't prove it, because we don't have the details to know, there is a chance, and I think, in fact, a very strong likelihood, that Jesus' triumphal entry, when it finished coming down the hill from the Mount of Olives, went through this gate. Now, these days, it's called the Lion Gate because of those little lions that are on it. This picture's from the 19th century, but the lions are still there. That's where the Sheep Gate used to sit. It was rebuilt in the 16th century under the Ottomans. And they built it slightly differently, but it's in the same location. That was the gate through which the sheep that were going into the temple to be sacrificed entered. For me, that would see Jesus' life bracketed at the beginning and the end by a symbolism that pointed to this most important of roles, the Lamb of God. In the first chapter of John, many of you will be aware that it starts off with this deeply theological preface on the role of the Messiah, the first 14 verses. The first time that Jesus actually appears in the book of John is in verse 29. There's no um, nativity story in John. John the Baptist, his Jesus' cousin, is preaching and Jesus turns up. <coughs> John 1.29 reads like this. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So what did those angels announce 30 years earlier? Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a saviour who is the Messiah, the Lord. So even on the day of his birth, these angels were proclaiming that it was about his death because it was only in his death that he became our saviour. It was in his resurrection he became our Lord. So maybe this Christmas... Someone will make a comment to you about shepherds. Or maybe they'll make a comment about 
Why was Jesus born in a manger? Well, that's where, in a, in a sense, in a stable, that's where you'd expect a lamb to be born. I think the two things tie together nicely. And I want you to plug up the courage to say something about the good news that the shepherds discovered about the Lamb of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that on that first Christmas you gave us that Lamb of God. Just as you gave Abraham that perfect sacrifice of a sheep when he was up there asked to sacrifice Isaac. Lord, you have provided for us that sacrifice so much greater than the one that Abraham had and one whose death is sufficient for the sin of all of us. Father, we ask that we might come to a realisation of what is the most amazing event and that we might recapture some of the excitement that we might have had when we were small. But Father, we ask that that excitement might be about the unveiling of the Lamb of God. Father, we thank you for our Saviour and for our salvation. We pray these things in his name. Amen. I think we have another song. <laughs>